Let's open our Bibles this evening to the book of Joshua, chapter number 2. I'm glad to see you and I both survived the message this morning. And you've even come back. So we'll see what that means. Amen. Joshua, chapter number 2. I have had a thought on my heart out of the life of Joshua for a few weeks now. And I have been uh, praying and waiting on when it would be the Lord's time to preach on it. And uh, this might be a little bit different type of message, I think, than what I normally preach. A lot of times we preach expositionally around here. And what that means is we uh, take a text and move carefully and, uh, you know, uh, systematically through that text. And we try to handle everything in it. Uh, but I want to uh, preach something that will be a little bit more of an overview. Or we might say this, an observation about some behavior in the life of the Old Testament character Joshua. And uh, I just, I don't know how to preach it. I'm just going to spit it out at you. How does that sound? Amen. All right. Joshua chapter number 2. And let's begin reading in verse number 1. Joshua chapter 2, verse number 1. We're just going to read three verses here. We'll read one verse in in, uh, the beginning of the chapter, and then we'll read two at the close of the chapter. Verse number 1. The Word of God says that Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into an harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. Jump down to verse 23 with me. Look at verse 23. It says, So the two men returned and descended from the mountain and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun and told him all things that befell them. They said unto Joshua, Truly the Lord hath delivered into our hands all the land, for even all the inhabitants of the country do faint. Because of us. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this evening. What a blessing it is to be in your house tonight. I pray that you'd, uh, Lord, give me instruction, give me wisdom. Let, uh, Lord, your words be my words tonight. And Father, may we, uh, as we approach unto your word, may we hear your voice this evening as the Spirit of God seeks to minister the truth of it in our hearts and lives. Uh, Lord, we yield ourselves unto thee this evening. And we ask that all that's accomplished be done in such a way that Christ might receive glory. We ask it in His precious name. Amen. Now, I'll tell you tonight, we're going to do a lot of reading of Scripture uh, that I believe is necessary for us to get the overview. And so we'll do a a little more reading than we normally do and a little less preaching, maybe. Uh, Or maybe we'll just do a little more of both and we'll be here till 1030. Amen. But I, I I think we'll just do a little more reading and a little less preaching. You know, when I read in Joshua chapter 2, this, of course, is the story about uh, Joshua sending out the two spies into the city of Jericho uh, to view the land, to spy the land, before God sends the armies of the children of Israel to Jericho. And uh, if you uh, have grown up in Sunday school, if you've uh, heard the stories of the Word of God, particularly in narrative form, you no doubt have heard about the uh, tumbling of the walls of Jericho and the marching around the city, the blowing of the trumpets, the shouting, how that God delivered the city into the hand of the people that day. But when I read in Joshua chapter number 2, and I think back to Joshua's life and Joshua's history, there is something that jumps out to me very instructively. And that is the number of spies that Joshua sent into the land. In fact, Joshua was familiar with this concept of reconnaissance. Brother Ken, he was part of a group of spies earlier uh, amongst the people of Israel that were sent into the land of Canaan some 40 years prior to the story that we've read this evening. But when Joshua is sent into the land, uh, he is part of a party of 12 spies. 
Now again, some of y'all may have learned this in Sunday school. That's where I learned it. And I, I remember singing the song about the spies. Did you ever learn the song about the spies and how ten were bad and two were good? Well, Joshua was one of those good spies. Him and a man named Caleb were the only two that brought back a good report of the land of Canaan. And I began to think about Joshua now, four decades later, standing at the, at the helm of leadership. And it is now, uh, under administration of God's wisdom, it is Joshua's decision to make as to how many people they're going to send into the land of Jericho. Joshua, rather than choosing twelve spies, chooses only two and sent them into the land. And I began to think about that, Brother Bill. I began to think, what was it that made Joshua make a different decision than Moses did? Well, I'll go ahead and tell you before we even get to the preaching. I think it's probably pretty apparent to most of us. Joshua looked at it and said, if you can send 12 spies into the land and 10 are bad and 2 are good, let's just send the two good ones. Somebody say amen right there. But here it speaks to a larger principle that I want to preach on tonight. And that is the wisdom of lived experience. There are some things, Brother Ken, that we learn by living through it. And there are certain things, I sort of hinted at this this morning, I, the crowd that I hang around with, I'm young or, or allegedly so, and I hang around older people. One of the things that has afforded me is the, the blessing and benefit of learning from some lived experience. There are certain things you only learn by living through it, by going through it, by seeing it with your own God-given eyeballs and watching the result. And there is some wisdom in lived experience. There's some value in lived experience. You ever look back at a decision that you made and thought to yourself, if I had known then what I know now, I would have done something quite differently. I think Joshua is an example of this. When I think of the life of Joshua, I note, by way of introduction, four things about his relationship with Moses. Joshua and Moses were very close. Joshua and Moses had a relationship much like Paul and Timothy in the New Testament, much like Elijah and Elisha during the age of the prophets. Moses was somewhat of a mentor, the older man of God. And Joshua, the younger man of God, was somewhat of a protege and would be one day the one to whom the reins of power would be passed. And we learn from reading through the uh, the Old Testament uh, first five books, the Pentateuch, and we if we watch for Joshua's name, we'll find an interesting pattern. Everywhere where Moses was, it seemed like Joshua was. In Exodus chapter 17 we learn that Joshua worked with Moses. The Bible says in verse number 8, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim, and Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did, as Moses said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Joshua was the type of man that when Moses told him what to do, he just did it. He didn't argue with him about it. He just did it. He knew the task that was set in front of him. 
And he knew what God had called and expected of him. And so he had spent years working with Moses and watching Moses and observing Moses' actions. Not only that, I note in Scripture that he waited on Moses. Exodus 24:13 tells us that Moses rose up and his minister, Joshua. And Moses went up into the mount of God. Numbers 11:28 says that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant, of Moses, one of his young men answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. He was a servant to Moses. I remember one time years ago, I was the youth pastor at the church that I grew up at, and uh, I worked with and, and worked for the pastor that I had grown up under, and he was many, many years my senior, and some of you all knew Dr. Bevington, and uh, you knew you heard him on the radio, and you heard him preach, and I remember one time going to a meeting, going to a uh, a, a fellowship meeting with him, and he was the type of guy that everywhere, you, everywhere he went, he knew everybody. Uh, I, I mean, that's, he couldn't get anywhere because anywhere he went and sat down, he knew he knew everybody. I've had people that went to the Holy Land with him that told me he got off a plane in the Holy Land and somebody said, Brother Bob! Everybody just knew who he was. And so we were at this fellowship meeting and, of course, there's preachers, older men of God than me, sitting all around and talking with him. And uh, they were all introducing the their young men that were with them, they'd say, this is my assistant pastor, or this is, uh, this is, uh, you know, my, my youth pastor, this is a young man that I'm training to, uh, take my spot in the ministry, and I was waiting for my glowing introduction. And I sat there and waited and listened, and finally Brother Bob said, this is my secretary, and turned, <laughs> and just kept on talking. I thought, secretary? I didn't know I was your secretary. I'm, I, I, I'm the youth pastor, I'm not your secretary. I didn't say nothing about it because I knew better. Amen? I just said, yep, I'm the secretary. (laughs) What an honor it was, though, to be considered even somebody that would wash the hands of or even somebody that would wait upon a seasoned man of God. That's what Joshua was to Moses. He was his servant. He was his minister. In Exodus 33:11, we learn that Joshua worshipped with Moses. The Bible says that the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend, and he turned again into the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. When Moses would go in and commune with the God of glory, when uh, Moses would go in and minister within the tabernacle in offices and services that only heaven could disclose to us the details of, Moses being who he was, he was not the high priest, but we find him going into the tabernacle. We might say, what did he do in there? And I don't know. I guess we'll get to heaven and ask him. But no doubt wondrous things to behold in the communion and fellowship that Moses enjoyed with God there in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And all the while, Joshua was there watching him and worshiping with him. And that's what he did. Moses even said to Joshua right before the close of his life in Deuteronomy 3.21, Moses says that I commanded Joshua at that time saying, Thine eyes have seen all that the Lord your God hath done. In other words, Joshua had spent all them years watching Moses and learning by Moses' victories and his failures some lived experience. Let me go ahead and say before I even get into the message... I don't mean this as a criticism of Moses. There are certain things that Moses did and decisions he made, some of them by the direct instruction of God, and they were not wrong. But that don't mean that Joshua didn't sit along the side and say, you know, that teaches me something about human nature. Let me tell you, you learn a lot more in life 
when you quit framing things in terms of white hats and black hats and instead seek to understand something about human nature when you observe how things take place. Now that's not to say there's not good and there's not bad. It's not to say there's not good people and bad people. But it is to say that Joshua was not a necessarily better than Moses. Moses was not a bad person. And sometimes Moses was even doing something under the direct instruction of God. But that don't mean Joshua didn't sit back and look at it and think, you know, there's something to learn here. So when I look at the life and ministry of Joshua... I notice, and there's probably a thousand of these, but I notice three in particular decisions, leadership choices that Joshua makes that were markedly different than the decisions that Moses made when he was the leader. And let's stop and think about what these might teach us about lived experience. The first one is what we've read uh, in our opening text. Joshua, in going into the land, He selects only two spies and not twelve. Listen to what Moses did, however, in determining the number of spies. Numbers chapter number 13 begins this way in verses 1 and 2. It says, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men, that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them. Down in verse 25, it says this, they returned from searching of the land after 40 days, and they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh, and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. They told them and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, And this is the fruit of it. They could have and should have stopped there. But in verse 28, they said, nevertheless. Can I say this? Don't ever nevertheless God. God says something, that's enough. Don't nevertheless God. Go ahead and accept what God says. Nevertheless, they said, the people be strong that dwell in the land. And the cities are walled and very great. Moreover, we saw the children of Anak there, meaning there are giants there. Verse 29, they said, The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. You know what Caleb had sense enough to see? They were losing their nerve. Can I tell you something? God's stirring in your heart. Go ahead, listen, if He stirs the waters, go ahead and get in while they're stirred, or you'll lose your nerve. If God's dealing in your heart and life, go ahead and and say yes to God or you'll lose your nerve. Caleb looked around at this bunch and said, they're about to lose it. We better make a decision right now. He said, let us go up at once and possess it. But the men that went up with him said, we've been not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight. Notice what he said, we were in our own sight. Not in their sight. He said we were in our own sight first. Because what you are in your own sight is going to dictate what you are in other people's sight. Well, we, we, we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Now, here's young Joshua. He's one of these twelve. Him and Caleb are ready, primed to go in and believe God and take the land. But he sees that entire venture short-circuited 
by a majority of the spies. You know what I thought about? You might disagree with me. But I thought, you know, this probably taught Joshua a lesson about the majority. We live in a society today where the majority is a sanctifying quality. If enough people say that something is right, people accept it as right. I don't know how you'll feel about what I'm about to say, but I'm not going to start caring now. (laughs) But I think there is some massive, large-scale social engineering going on in our world right now. I think there's people trying to figure out what all people will go along with if they're told to go along with it. And I think there's people trying to figure out what if we can get enough people doing one thing, will everybody else do that thing? And will they go along no matter how intrusive it might be? You might disagree with that and you have the right to do it. But in Joshua's day, I think one of the things that he saw was this. Number one, he noted the fallibility of the majority. Let me just say it this way. The majority, Joshua must have thought to himself as he read it, as he made plans to infiltrate Jericho, he must have thought within himself, you know, the majority for the kin is not always right. In fact, he might have thought this more often than not, the majority is wrong. Now, I do not believe that God calls us to be contrarians. Some of us are just cut out for it. But I do believe that it is a basic truism of life that the world has a spirit, a philosophy, a culture, and a direction that is completely contrary to the principles of the Word of God. And as such, it would behoove you and me just to simply recognize that as we walk through this old broken world, more often than not, the majority is going to be wrong. We need to get comfortable with being in the minority, ideologically and spiritually speaking. Can I tell you something? We preached a little bit this morning out of the book of Amos, if you heard it. And we have gotten plumb used to, Brother Ken, being in the majority as Christian people. We are having an identity of crisis right now. And we're running to politicians to solve it. We're running to social media to solve it. We're running to culture coalitions to solve it. Because we are having a crisis of identity as Christians surrounding this idea of being in the minority. We can't stand the thought of being persecuted against, discriminated against, maltreated, afflicted, and just downright dogged. Can I tell you, that is our place. It has always been. Now, I'm not suggesting some sort of, of weak-kneed pacifism as regards uh, making our voice heard. I'm just saying this. You understand that all throughout human history, most of the time, Christians was being burned at stakes. Not having politicians bow and bend to their will. We have enjoyed the freedom and liberty for 250 years to live in a nation that the majority of that time had a reverence for the Bible and a reverence for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's made us believe that if we don't have the support of the majority, there must be something wrong. Can I tell you something? That That's the anomaly. Usually it's that the majority is incorrect. And Joshua, he thought to himself, he must have sat there and thought, Moses sent out twelve spies... And what good did those ten do? You know, the majority only has purpose when it's right. If it's wrong, it's meaningless. 
If those ten spies had never been sent, they would have been better off. And I think that was the second thing he learned. He learned not only the fallibility of the majority, but I think he began to realize the liability of the majority. You can sort of sense this, and we we preached at it a little bit a moment ago. As they're talking, as they're giving this report, you can imagine these twelve men standing before the uh, you know two million strong uh, you know people of Israel, and 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 sounding forth, declaring in very official manner what they saw in the land. And you can imagine Joshua standing up and saying, "Listen, fellas, it's an amazing place. It's everything that God promised and more. And God's going to give it to us." And there's there's and and peace for you and your family and for me and my family. All we have to do is believe God and stand up and go and take the land. Joshua sits down and Caleb stands up and says, I'm going to second what Brother Joshua said. All we have to do is believe God. In fact, there's a mountain I've got already picked out there that I want. And all we have to do is just trust God and go in. And then all of a sudden, number three stands up. We don't know his name or if we don't know who the third one that spoke, but, but number three stands up and says, fellas, I just don't know. And Joshua watched as that whole scene went off the rails. As man after man after man stood up and said fundamentally this, God can't do it. Joshua probably thought to himself this that day. If there had only been two of us, we would have took the land. If there had only been two of us, we would have took the land. We sent 12 men into that land and that hurt us more than it helped us. We sought representation above consecration. You listening to me? Representation above consecration. We have been raised with the concept that everybody needs to have a voice. Can I tell you something? There's only one person whose voice matters. And that's the Lord's. In your life, in my life, you don't have to have everybody clap for you. You don't have to have everybody agree with you. You don't have to have everybody uh, everybody sing your praise. If God is pleased with your life, then that is enough. And in fact, you live a life pleasing to God very often, the rest of the world won't clap. He had learned not only is the majority wrong, but going with the majority could shipwreck your life. I feel like I ought to be preaching to teenagers tonight. Y'all just try to get excited like teenagers and it'll go well. Because so often we preach to young people how they need to grasp this understanding that the majority is not a sanctifying element just because everybody's doing it. Can I, Listen, can I echo your uh, parenting voice and say this if everybody jumped off a bridge? Joshua said, I saw everybody jump off a bridge that day. He said, I don't, I'm not going to see this whole venture go that direction. So here's what he learned. He learned the fallibility of the majority. He learned the liability of the majority. The majority is wrong more often than it's right. If you follow the majority, it can shipwreck your life. You see that this world is burning to the ground. Don't go with it. So that led him to a third thought, and that was this. He realized the dispensability of the majority. He stopped and thought this way, but Ken, he thought if the majority's wrong more often than it's right, if going with the majority is going to make a mess of my life, well, fooey on the majority. And I'll just go and trust God and do things His way. 
I'll tell you why he sent two spies in the land, because he had two men that he knew trusted God, that he knew believed God. He didn't need twelve. He wanted to send in all it took, listen, to affirm the voice of God. Surround yourself only and exclusively with people that affirm the voice of God. We've been taught, we've been programmed to believe that an, an eclectic array of worldviews is what's healthy. It's not. We've been taught to believe that we need perspective from every angle. That's not true. We've raised our children to believe that they need to grow up learning about all the various world religions and all the various ways of living. And we need to broaden their horizon. We don't. We need to give them a biblical worldview. We need to teach them what thus saith the Lord. We need to teach them that's what's right that everything else is wrong. We need to teach them that the majority is wrong more often than it's right, that you'll wreck your life by going with the majority. So here's what you do. Forget the majority and just go with God. I think he learned a truth about the majority. I see another occasion when Joshua did something markedly different. Let's start, though, with what Moses did. Listen to what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 14, verse number 26. Now, you're probably familiar with this passage of Scripture, The children of Israel have passed through the Red Sea. And it says in verse 26 that the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. You notice that? Israel saw that, man. They saw what God did that day. A whole generation of people saw the mighty power of God. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. Now look over in chapter 15. Look what Moses does. Verse 1. Then sang Moses... And the children of Israel, this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. So they come through the Red Sea. God brings the waters coming, crashing down upon the armies of Pharaoh. And the Bible's very explicit, Brother Kim, that all of Israel saw the mighty triumph of God that day. Verse number 15, what did they do and respond to that? Well, the Bible tells us that Moses and the children of Israel sang a song unto the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. We have it recorded in the Word of God. But you know, that wasn't the only time that God parted waters for the children of Israel to come across. Listen to Joshua chapter number 4. You know, in Joshua chapter number 4, that God parted the Jordan River. The children of Israel passed through the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. So they passed the Red Sea coming out of Egypt. And they passed through the Jordan River going into Canaan. Moses is dead and gone. And Joshua is now the leader over the children of Israel. What did he do when the waters receded? Listen to what it says in Joshua 4 verse 1. It says, It came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men 
out of the people, out of every tribe a man. And command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones. Ye shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take ye up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. This is why he did that. Listen, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children... Ask their fathers. So he's not just talking about your kids. He's saying when your descendants, when your great, 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 grandkids kids ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan. The waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. You know, I think about what Moses did and what Joshua did. Moses sang a song. Joshua set up stones. Here's Joshua 40 years after the parting of the Red Sea. And he has listened as this covenant people carried upon the wings of God's grace and provision have murmured and complained almost every day of the trip. He's seen an entire generation die in the wilderness because of their unbelief. He's observed even the mighty man of God, Moses, being laid low because of his impatience and his unwillingness to trust God in a situation. And you know, I bet Joshua thought to himself, boy, it didn't take long, and they quit singing that song. He probably thought to himself, we need something with more permanence than songs. We need stones. You know, I think Joshua learned a lesson about memory. Memory fades. Memorials don't. We're having a lot of alleged controversy. It's not controversy for me, but a lot of alleged controversy in our country about memorials and monuments. Can I say that one of the great things that happens during any political or religious revolution is the tearing down of monuments. It is a tenet of Maoism. It's a tenet of Marxist, Maoist communism to destroy the old monuments. Because you cannot destroy the old habits, the old ideas, the old cultures which Mao uh, propagated and promulgated that idea. You can't do that while there's still memorials and statues. You know why? Because it don't matter how you change the textbooks. It don't matter how you change the culture. It doesn't matter how you change the Hollywood movies. It doesn't matter how you change music. There will always be somebody that walks by that statue and looks up and asks their mama or daddy, who is that man? If they're going to change and rewrite history, they've got to tear down the monuments. I think Joshua learned this lesson pretty well. He learned that people will forget songs, but a statue will be in the way and they'll have to deal with it. Now, you might say, well, that's good, preacher. That's good potpourri for thought, but what does it have to do with me? Well, it tells me two things. One, it reminds me of the frailty of my memory. You know, God did an amazing thing that day at the Red Sea. 
And it didn't take long for them to forget about it. Wonder how many amazing things God has done in my life that I forgot about. And on the day that it happened, I stood on the shore of my of my problems and my trials and lifted my voice and sang praise to the God of glory and promised and swore an oath that I would never forget what He did that day. But it didn't take long and the melody faded. And it didn't take long and the lyrics were scrambled. And I forgot what God did on that day. Then I think about certain things in my life where I have set up memorials and monuments. Now you might say, preacher, what does that look like? Sometimes it can look like keeping a journal. Sometimes it can look like making a pledge unto the Lord, a change in your life, making a determination to step into a role of service or ministry that you're doing out of respect and out of repayment for God's goodness and grace. But there are certain things in my life I can look back to. And I I thank the Lord somebody wrote down a date that I got born again. I probably wouldn't remember that date if it hadn't been ingrained upon my mind because mom and daddy took and wrote it in the back of a Bible. I think about the decisions I've made in my life and things that have a lasting effect. And you know, it, it leads me to this. We ought to, number one, engage in lasting activities. You ought to do something that's going to last longer than this moment, this but a short time, Paul called it. Our light affliction, it endureth, Paul called it but a moment. That's what this life is. It is but a moment. You ought to make sure in your life you're doing something that lasts past this moment. Number two, it reminds me I ought to erect lasting monuments in my life. You ought to keep a record of what God has done. I mean that literally. That's not figurative. You ought to take pen, paper in hand, or however is convenient for you. And you, write, you ought to write down the answered prayers. You ought to write down when God come riding in on the white horse of deliverance in your life, sometimes when you didn't even ask Him to, and, and, and change things and, and cast down your enemies and, and was the lifter up of your head. You ought to write down because you can sing a song of praise today and you'll forget it by next Sunday. That's how frail your memory is. See, songs can be forgotten. Songs, Brother Ken, can be foregone. I find that when I don't want to sing a song, I generally don't sing it, unless it gets stuck in my head. Amen. Very often, if I don't want to remember it, I won't remember it. Actually, the opposite is true. Usually, if I want to forget it, I can't help but remember it. And if it's something that I desperately need to remember, I, I can't wrap my memory around it. But I'm saying this, they only... If all you ever do is write songs, I don't mean, I don't mean explicitly, but I mean if all you ever do is memorialize in your heart and mind what God has done and you never set up monuments in your life, then you're only gonna revisit those songs when you find it convenient or comforting. There might be times when it would be inconvenient or uncomfortable, but you desperately need to hear that. You know, I wonder if anybody ever stubbed their toe on one of those rocks. You ever stub your toe on one of the... I wonder if anybody was ever walking by the River Jordan, not paying attention, and stubbed their toe on one of those rocks. And that rock got their attention. You ever spiritually been walking along and stubbed your toe on one of them rocks? Uh, down in the mouth, complaining, God don't love me, God don't care about me. I don't Boom! Ow! What was that? That's just God reminding you how good He's been to you. You, you ever been criticizing God and then all of a sudden it dawned on you how, how good God had been to you? That was you stubbing your toe on one of them rocks. 
You'll have a lot more rocks if you'll put pen to paper. You'll have a lot more rocks if you'll share the testimony of that with others. You'll have a lot more rocks if you'll respond in obedience when God deals with you. And Listen, I, I don't think we are compelled to make vows unto the Lord. I know God warns us if we vow a vow to not defer to pay it, that God will not hold us guiltless. But I don't think there's anything wrong with making commitments to the Lord in light of His goodness and grace in our life. I'm talking about raising stones because we've learned a lesson about memory. I've got one more I want to share with you, and I'll be done tonight. In Numbers chapter number 14, we have a little more information about what transpired when those ten spies came back and refused to go into the land. And Listen to what takes place. Numbers chapter 14, this is in the life of Moses. It says in verse number 1 that all the congregation, now that means all the nation of Israel, they lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. Now, this is, this is in response to, to that report that had been given. They said, we can't take the land. The people all started crying and weeping. It says in verse 2 that all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. The whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land, to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then He will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. The glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. The Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them. I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. What Moses do? By the way, I think it's noble what Moses does, but let's think a little more deeply about it. Verse 13, Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. For they have heard that the Lord art among this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore hath he slain them in the wilderness." And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. This is what Moses asked. He said, Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now, The Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. 
Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it, but my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and he hath followed me fully. Him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwelt in the valley. Tomorrow the Lord said, turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So let's stop and think about what happens here. The ten spies come and they report. They say, we cannot take this land. It's too big. It's too much. God can't do it. The children of Israel lift their voices. They weep. They cry. They start sulking. They start whining and moaning and complaining and criticizing God. They said, why did you bring us out? You should just lift us back. We would have been better off to die in Egypt or to die in this wilderness, but you brought us here. Why have you done this? Moses and Joshua and Caleb fall on their faces before the Lord. And Moses begins to plead with God and to say, God, you have to take us into the land. You have to lead us. You have to be merciful. You have to be kind. God responds this way. He says, I'm done with these people. They have provoked me and provoked me and provoked me. He says, I'm going to disinherit them and destroy them. And he says, Moses, I'll start with you and I'll make of thee a great nation. Now, Moses had a choice. He could have done what most of us he would, done, would, have, he would, we would have said. Sounds good. <laughs> but in some ways, Moses was a bigger person than you or me. So instead, Moses begins to pray and he asks God, he says, according to thy great mercy, pardon this people. God responds and he says, all right, Moses, according to thy word, I have pardoned them. But they will not see this land. And when we come to the close of this chapter, the Lord says, now turn and head to the wilderness. For 40 years, Brother Ken, they'd wander in that wilderness. Moses thought he was saving them. Moses thought he was getting them into the land. But you understand that the people that Moses interceded for that day never got into the land. So what happened instead? But Carrie, I see that 40 years was wasted. I see that Moses himself wound up not making it into the land during that season of 40 years. Because Moses, in his desire to see God pardon them, Ask God to show mercy where mercy was not deserved. I think that Joshua probably learned a lesson about mercy. You know why I think this? Because Joshua responds a little different way. We preached on this a few weeks ago, but listen to what happens in Joshua chapter 7. Now, you know the story, right? They, they destroy Jericho or God destroys Jericho. And God had told the children of Israel, He said, don't take anything of Jericho. It, it all belongs unto me. If you take of anything, it'll be a curse and it'll make you a curse and I'll judge you because of your disobedience. Instead, you need to leave everything, all of the spoil, it belongs unto the Lord. And everybody was okay with that except a man named Achan. Achan, as he is uh, rummaging through the wreckage and, and gathering the spoil together for the Lord, he sees some gold and some silver and a Babylonian garment. And something about his flesh tells him, Achan, that, you deserve that. That belongs to you. You take that. So Achan takes this and goes and digs a hole under his tent and hides it there. Uh, next day or a few days later, uh, they move on from Jericho to a little city named Ai. And Ai was a small place. And they knew they didn't even need their full army, Brother Ken. They just needed just a small contingent 
of uh, of their military soldiers to go and take it. So they go and they they uh, go to war with AI. And you know the story how that AI annihilates them, demolishes them, destroys their army. Something's obviously wrong. They threw down the great walled city of Jericho. Now they can't even handle a little AI. Listen to what happens. Joshua and the elders of Israel, when they come back from that that battle, verse number 6 of chapter 7 says that Joshua rent his clothes, fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide. He and the elders of Israel and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side, Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the Lord shall hear of it and shall environ us around and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Forty years earlier, that's what the children of Israel are saying to the Lord. Now, forty years later, here's Joshua and I think it wasn't really Joshua. I think it was probably the elders of Israel. I think he was relaying their their sentiment, saying the exact same thing to God. Now, what's going to happen? Verse 10, The Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up, wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Israel hath sinned. They have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also. And they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you any more, except ye destroy the accursed from among you. Up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until ye take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord taketh shall come uh, according to the families thereof, and the family which the Lord shall take shall come by households, and the households which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. And it shall be that he that is taken with the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire, he and all that he hath, because he hath transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he hath wrought folly in Israel. Now let's stop and think about this. Here we are forty years earlier, the people murmur against God. God says, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to destroy them. Moses says, Lord, you can't do that. You promised them they'd see the land. What will the heathen say? They'll blaspheme you. It would have been better if we just stayed on the other side. Lord, pardon according to thy great mercy. Because Moses wants to save these people. He wants them to get in the land. He doesn't want them to have to deal with the consequences of their actions. God says, I'll pardon them, but they'll not see the land. So for 40 years they wander in the wilderness, 40 years of wasted time because of Moses' intercession. Now you come to the end of that 40 years and Joshua is at the helm. And a very similar situation occurs. Joshua cries out, much like they had 40 years earlier, and says, Lord, you brought us across here. We're gonna, it would have been better if we had stayed back there. We're gonna die here. They're gonna blaspheme you. What was the point in all of this? Why have you brought us here? And the Lord says, get up, Joshua. There's sin in the camp. Go deal with the sin. What did Joshua do? Did he begin to say, Lord, pardon this people. Lord, in your great mercy, don't, don't afflict us because of our sin. Verse 16 says, So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes. The tribe of Judah was taken. We can skip some of the details because verse 25 and 26 summarizes it for us. 
Joshua looks at Achan and says, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with great stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Wherefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. You know what I think Joshua learned on that day 40 years earlier? I think he learned a lesson about mercy. You hearing me? Still with me on this sleepy Sunday evening? I know you're still sleeping off a hangover from that Mexican food you ate for lunch. But stick with me, we're almost done. I think he learned a lesson about mercy. I think he learned a couple things. One, I think he learned this, that mercy is a divine quality. Joshua saw Moses beg God to have mercy. And God, against His offended holiness, pardoned the people of Israel. You know what I think Joshua learned that day? That God is bent towards mercy. God would sooner be merciful than anything else. I think Joshua learned that day that most of the time if you ask God to be merciful, He'll be merciful. That's just in God's nature. But you know, I think he learned a second thing that day. I think he learned that mercy is a divine quality. But I think he learned also that mercy is a dangerous quality. Some of you are thinking, Preacher, how is mercy dangerous? Stop and think about what it costs the children of Israel for God to show mercy that day. Can I ask you this question? Did Joshua make the right decision when he destroyed Achan and his family? I believe he did. You say, how is mercy dangerous? Ask the families of the men that died at the hands of the people of Ai if mercy is a dangerous quality. Now, somebody might be saying, Preacher, are you saying we shouldn't have mercy? No. I'm saying you need to recognize what mercy entails. Here's why. Mercy is a divine quality. It is a dangerous quality. And you know why? Because it is a dimensional quality. Mercy deals with more than just the offended and the offender. It's going to go on and touch the lives of those with whom that person has contact with for the rest of their days. What would have happened if Joshua had spared Achan against the commandment of the Lord? They would have continued to lose battles. They would have continued to lose people. It's not that God hated Achan. It's that God understood that for the children of Israel to triumph, they did not need simply mercy. They also needed sanctification. They needed consecration. They didn't just need compassion. They needed cleanness. And because of that, though God could have shown mercy, He could have spared Achan, He understood this fact. You know, you know what Achan's name means? It means troubler, troublemaker. God understood if He let Achan go that day, Achan was going to continue to trouble the people of Israel. You know something you learn as you get older? You know, I lock my doors at night. And I don't do it because I hate anybody outside my doors, Brother Ken. I do it because I love the people within my doors. I take the measures to protect myself and my family. And though I loathe the thought, I would imagine, I would imagine if I was put in a situation where it had to be my family's life or their life, I would take their life and spare my family. And that's of no malice whatsoever. But why do we do that? We do that because we understand that mercy has a cost associated with it. Can I tell you something? There will be people in your life 
that will ever seek to lean upon your mercy. And in doing so, if you're not careful, they can destroy you. This don't sound real nice and real fun and real pleasant. But I think it's the kind of experience that a man that had watched for 40 years the children of Israel walk through the wilderness and had watched... Can I tell you something? That generation died anyway. God showed mercy, but that generation died anyway. You know, sometimes mercy can be wasted. Some people will not receive the mercy shown to them. Some people will not respond to the mercy shown to them. And so understand that every time you show mercy... Now, somebody's going to say, Preacher, we should just never show mercy. No, mercy is a divine quality. We are called to show mercy. Hey, if we want people to show us mercy, we have to be merciful. But we need to understand that mercy can be a dangerous thing too. If we're not circumspect and wise about where and how we dispense mercy in the lives of others. Joshua, I think, learned this, that sometimes the more merciful thing is to withhold mercy. And he must have thought back to that day and thought, you know, if Moses had let God do what God desired to do, that generation would have died in the wilderness same as they did anyway. But maybe there would have been a generation of people that was raised that would have took the land immediately. Maybe we'd be 20 years further into this thing. Maybe God would have a group of people that had never known the murmuring and complaining that their parents had raised them. And you think that didn't have an effect? By the way, can I say this? I'm almost done. Please hang with me. Can I say this? That generation that did take the land, they weren't exactly superstars. They had their fair share of complaining and murmuring and disobedience to the Lord. Reck and wonder where they learned it. Could it have been 40 years walking around in the wilderness, listening to mama and daddy gripe about every good thing that God ever did for them? Mercy has a cost. We need to recognize that in our lives. There are people, sometimes the cost of your mercy will be yourself. There's some people will ask that much of you. They, they will demand that much of you. You say, well, preacher, maybe I should give that to him. God in His mercy gave us Himself. But I think God has also commanded us to be wise and circumspect. I think an old man like Joshua would probably sit and think to himself, there are times when mercy is called for, but there are times when mercy can be dangerous. We must be careful in how we measure out mercy. We live in a society today that has taken the idea of permissiveness and labeled it mercy. You hear what I said? Permissiveness and labeled it mercy. That it is an unmerciful thing to have a negative opinion about even anything, even sin. Can I go on record saying I have a negative opinion about sin? I'm against it. But in the world's nomenclature, that's considered unmerciful. Mercy has a cost. I'd say we've tolerated a lot in our society. And now we're sacrificing our children on pagan altars of godless idolatry and confusion today because there were people wanted to be merciful. There's a place for mercy. Please don't misunderstand me. But understand that excusing sin is not mercy. That's not what mercy is. Mercy is the absorbing of the punitive effect of sin upon yourself so that another might go free. That's what God did. 
And understand that every time you show mercy, that's what you're going to be doing too. Mercy is a dimensional thing. I think Joshua learned some important truths. I think he learned a truth about the majority. The majority's not always right. More often, the majority's wrong, and you can wreck your life going with the majority. I think he learned something about memory. You better write it down on more than just, than just songs. You better write it down on stones that will weather the coming and going years. And then I think he learned a lesson about mercy. You better be careful with mercy because mercy is a powerful thing. Let's bow together tonight. Musician will come and play. The altar's open. God touched your heart. I want you to be obedient to Him this evening. Father, I love you. I thank you for your word. I pray that you'd bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.